Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Shula Newman. Fair St. Louis is underway, and the VP Parade is tomorrow, the 4th of July. We'll take a look back now on the more than 140-year history of the Vail Profit Organization. Founded in 1878, the organization is associated with civic pride and philanthropy, as well as large celebratory events in St. Louis. But the Vail Profit also has a controversial and, in some respects, very secretive history. Joining me in studio to talk about the VP's beginning, as well as the protests, evolutions, and ongoing traditions connected to it, are Percy Green, a prominent civil rights activist, perhaps best known for scaling the Gateway Arch 55 years ago this month, and Devin Thomas O'Shea, a Chicago-based freelance writer who recently finished an as-yet-unpublished novel inspired by the city's veiled profit traditions. And Percy and Devin, I welcome you both to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Uh, We want to mention also that we invite a representative of the Vail Profit Organization to join us as part of today's show. Citing the busyness of its preparations for the holiday festivities, the organization declined our request but said it would consider the invitation in the future. So getting down to it, I want to go back to the history. And Devin, tell me, um, the VP organization, it does go back, as we mentioned, 140 years. How did it get its start? Right. Um, The original uh, sort of woodcut of the Veiled Prophet first appeared in the newspapers uh, in during the 1877 railroad strike in the United States, which um, was actually very interesting for St. Louis because that was one of the, instead of just shutting down the railroads in St. Louis, all the factories and all businesses came to a halt. So it was actually the first general strike or one of the first general strikes in the United States. And um, it was also one of the first uh, strikes where both black and white workers uh, united in solidarity. Um, but it was it went on for about six to seven days and then was eventually crushed by the police. And um, the next year, as a sort of way of um, the this VP woodcut appeared in the paper and said it's not going to stop for any trolleys. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a big part of the strike, as all the trolley conductors went on strike. Um, And so from then on, it was sort of used as a parade icon in the next year, in 1878. And was it the kind of parade that everybody got excited to come see? The turnout was huge. Well, not on the first year, because um, on the first year, there was still a lot of unrest in St. Louis. And uh, the Veiled Prophet originally appeared next to an executioner at the top of the parade, and that Veiled Prophet is one of the only ones that we know, and it was the police commissioner who would have been in charge of crushing the strike. So uh, the message was very clear for anyone who knew how to read those. Um, And another thing that we don't understand fully today is that that first Veiled Prophet was very clearly decipherable as a first wave Ku Klux Klansman, that it would have been very, um, especially to black St. Louisans, uh, the symbology would not have been lost on them. Wow. Because what, what, what did it look like? What were the symbols that, um, that conveyed that message? Um, well, it's the covered face and kind of dressed up as a wizard aspect is, has always been a Veiled Prophet thing. Um, and we get a little confused about the Klan because in the second wave of the Klan... Uh, in the 1920s. Is, yes, right. after Birth of a Nation is out in a novel called The Leopard, Leopard Spots. Mm-hmm. Um, very much influenced how the second wave came about. It linked it to burning crosses and steepled hoods and a very clear thing about Christianity. 
the first wave of the Klan was much more about um, ragtag ex-Confederates dressing up as like moon men or like the ghosts of Shiloh and sort of donning this uh, old European style of like, um, it's called charivari, but it's kind of a sort of Mardi Gras party atmosphere in order to usurp the law and do whatever they wanted um, and take the law into their own hands. Okay, so there was a connection to the Klan from the beginning. Um, Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering also, uh, so, you know, organizations like the VP, like the Vale Prophet, they actually aren't that unusual, certainly weren't that unusual in the United States during the Gilded Age, the debutante balls, the celebration of wealth. Um, What set the VP apart at that time from other organizations that were similar to it? Well, I think the uh, what's really interesting is that the original founder, Alonzo Slayback, uh, had a lot of connections to New Orleans and the Mardi Gras traditions there with the Mystic Crew of Comus. Mm-hmm. It's another very similar organization. And actually, uh, in 1878, the way that they got the first parade going was to buy equipment from New Orleans and ship it up the river sort of for free uh, in order to jumpstart the parade. Um, and yeah, it... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's great. So, so for from the late 1800s until the mid 1950s, 60s, this organization holds their their debutante ball and their parade in the evening. Um, and um, at some point, though, uh, things start to change, or I guess that the exclusionary factor of it starts to um, become. An issue, and I think Percy, this is where you come into the organization. Your link to the Veiled Prophet, as it were, started in the mid '60s. Obviously, not as a member, since blacks and Jews are were restricted from right. joining. Right. Um, but you had an organization called Action. Action. Yes. You want to tell me a little bit about that? Well, Action was a 100% volunteer protest organization, and of course, um, the thesis of what we were doing at that time were protesting big businesses and trying to encourage them to hire um, blacks, especially black men, into decent-paying jobs. Interesting enough, we still, today we're talking about $15 an hour, but back then we were focusing on um, blacks having decent-paying jobs, and especially black men. But first and foremost, I want to make it, uh, I want it to be understood clearly that actions protests of the Whiteville Prophet festivities was strictly part of a strategy to enhance our protests for fair employment at certain big businesses, uh, not to be part of it. In fact, Action's view of the Whiteville Prophet um, as a Ku Klux Klan organization by another name. According to Action, the VP organization should be abolished altogether if the city of St. Louis was to begin freeing itself from institutional racism and become a prosperous city for all people. So, so you were you were targeting big businesses. How did you make the link to the Veiled Prophet? Because we discovered that the chief executive officers of all of the large businesses that we were um, um, uh, trying to encourage to hire at the time and the names of those companies were Southwestern Bell Telephone, of course it's now AT&T, Laclede Gas Company, now Spear, Spear, uh, Union Electric, now Amarant, McDonnell Douglas Corporation, now Boeing, and then of course the 
uh, McDonald Construction Company is the name of the company that built the arch at that time. And so the mere fact that here we were fighting these companies individually for um, something that we thought that was humane, and that's a, for allowing um, black men to have a decent paying job so they could provide for one's comp- uh, for, uh, for, uh, family. Um, and then, of course, here these same people were sitting on an all-racist, all-white racist uh, social um, uh, club, uh, them calling it the Veil Prophet and us calling it the VP because there was such striking similarities in their behavior, economically as well as socially. Right. So one of the big uh, protests, I mean, you, you protested in all kinds of ways. It yeah. wasn't, um, you know, I mean, I was reading a little bit, if you want to tell me some of the, the street protests. and. Well, I mean, we disrupted the, we started disrupting the, um, we started uh, Seven years out, 1965, we started our direct action protests against the parade. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was being held at night at the time. And then they would have the, the ball, I think, the very, next, uh, the very next day. Or it might have been vice versa. Maybe it was the ball and then the parade. But anyway, we targeted the, um, the, the parade by uh, disrupting it. How did we go about disrupting it? We um, handcuffed uh, a couple of years. We handcuffed uh, ourselves to the float oh and uh, just sat down, and that would, would prevent the float from moving until uh, the police come up with a way of how to cut the, uh, uh, the, the handcuffs from the float. We used a chain in one year, then we used handcuffs another time. I was one of the persons that, that during the first time I think we did that, uh, Loretta Hall, uh, and, uh, was a member of Action. Her and, and I both uh, uh, <coughs> did that, I think, in 1960, uh, 1967, I believe it was. And then, of course, uh, and then afterwards, doing the, uh, we eventually evolved to having what we called the Black Bell Profit Bowl. Uh-huh. The Black Bell Profit Bowl was a protest, but it was a fundraiser, and we did the opposite of the of what was done with a white one. We invited, uh, the, the public was invited. I mean, everyone was at black and white could come. And then, of course, uh, uh, after the crowning of the Blackfield Prophet and the black, uh, the Blackfield Prophet Queen was called the Queen of Human Justice. As opposed and, to the Queen of Love opposed and Beauty. Opposed to Love and yeah. Beauty. <laughs> and then we demand, we would visit the, the, the white VP bowl and demand that the black VP and the Queen of Human Justice enter and sit next to the uh, the, the, the the white one. Or what the that. <laughs> I mean, it was you know it was that type That's of protest. Right. Yeah. But during that particular time, we had always warned um, and made public that we were going to unveil the Veil Prophet from 1965 all the way up until the time that we actually did it. We actually did it. And I'm going to get to that story next, but we do have to take a break right now. We'll be back shortly to continue this conversation looking back on the more than 140 years of Veil Prophet history. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. 
Welcome back to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Shula Newman, and we return now to our conversation with writer Devin Thomas O'Shea and with Percy Green, founder of Action, the civil rights organization that used direct action to advocate for economic justice and good jobs for minorities. And we're talking about the history of the VP uh, or the Veil Profit Organization. And we want to mention again that we did invite a representative of the Veil Profit Organization to join us as part of today's show. They cited the busyness of the preparations for the holiday festivities and they declined our request, but they did say that they would consider an invitation in the future. So when we left off, we were at 1972, and uh, we were, I, we, you were, Percy, about to tell us what happened when you actually unveiled the profit, the second time in the organization's well, history. Well, the interesting thing is that over the duration of time, uh, uh, members of the elite, mm-hmm. the chief executive officers, their children, apparently, uh, become fascinated about the protesting. And of course, uh, some of them, later we learned that they were sick and tired of this event. And um, they made, uh, during 1972, I believe it was, the um, a couple of the uh, debutantes or the members of the organization, the young folks, made available tickets to the to the event. And with Action being an, an interracial organization, this would be a demonstration uh, demonstration strictly for uh, whites, uh, white members to participate. And uh, at the time, uh, Gina Scott and um, Jane Sauer uh, were the two persons who was available uh, to be able to um, participate, so we made uh, they made a, uh, we made available the gowns and they had the tickets and they had all of the the courtesy whatever that you, you had to do to uh, to get in, and um, they uh, did that, and um, I think it's already been it's been written that they went to the um, balcony. Uh, Jane Sauer set up the diversionary by dropping the leaflets at one end of the balcony to cause most of the people's attention to go in that direction while Jana came down the um, the uh, the rope there, the balcony, of, what do you call it? I guess a stage of, yeah. uh, I guess the, you wouldn't call them ropes, you call cables, cable, I guess. Right. He came down to the first floor there, and then, of course, it is true that one of the cables pulled, pulled away from the, um, the ceiling, mm-hmm. and she fell about six about six feet, oh knocking the wind out of her, and some gentleman came up to one to help her. She told him, get away from me, and whatnot, and the mere fact that she was all dressed up in her, uh, uh, in her uh, gown and everything, he obeyed her, and she then walked around behind the stage, come up behind the uh, the the white VP and snatched his uh, his his uh, gear off his headgear off and threw it out in the out into the, the middle of the floor there. And she described she said everyone was shocked, including the the lancers. I mean they were just, really and then all of a sudden she said she heard everyone say ooh. <laughs> I mean everyone was just shocked. nobody's supposed to know who <laughs> nobody's supposed is. to know. Right. But the, it's interesting that the newspapers. Wrote it up in such a way that, and they wrote it up, and I have the the document here where they want to say that the the lancers of the uh, the folks that were standing guard there quickly grabbed the uh, 
the headgear and put him on and put it back on him before anyone recognized him, which was not true. The St. Louis Journalism Review was the first and only newspaper identified after we had identified who the VP uh, was at the time. Um, Tom K. Smith, uh, who was a he was a vice president at uh, one of the banks, I believe, uh, or Monsanto. Monsanto, that's, Monsanto, yeah. that's yeah. what it was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So, so obviously, I mean, this was this was a, a big deal, and it shook things up. Do you think that your protests did eventually change things for the Vale Profit organization? Well, yes, but it didn't. Uh, yes, I mean, in, in, in both ways. Hopefully, that it sensitized the chief executive officers to the extent that they were called out being uh, part of uh, an all-white uh, racist organization, and yet um, they were supposed to be claiming to be fair-minded in terms of their hiring practices. And we're hoping that. We don't see a whole lot of evidence, but, uh, you know, these type of things, does uh, they do uh, cause some concern and for people to, to behave differently. The biggest thing, though, that bothered me was that the news media refused to identify um, uh, uh, and be fair with news. Now, if the news media would cover up something like that, I'm talking about the printed media as well as the electronic media, they knew that this person was exposed and they should have reported the news. But if they do something like that for this type of organization, what else is it that the news media are capable of doing? Right. Well, I, I mean, I have to say growing up at that time, I remember... Uh, that the Post-Dispatch would have these spreads of the ball itself and all yeah. the debutantes pictured. And I mean, so there was obviously uh, an enamored, you know, that the, the, there was an, el- an element that the media was enamored with the ball itself. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, it, it changed. They tried their best to try to um, uh, minimize. You see, the biggest thing was that I think that when we went on the offense and called in the VP, not only racist, or an elitist, but we also point out that it was sexist, and we and we identified it so. But what hurt them the most was when uh, we pointed out that they was auctioning off their daughters to white males of that same class. Now they really got bent out of shape about about that phraseology. Yeah, and that and and that you had white women that were part of that unveiling. Yes, so it's indicative that oh. that really rang true with oh, women yes. involved. Yes, yes, right. uh, by all means. The mere fact that Gina Scott and Jane Sauer were both white females uh, in the organization. I mean that, that 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 that. And then, of course, the interesting thing is that after they were arrested uh, on that particular evening in 1972, I believe it was, uh, they dropped all the charges. Hmm. I mean, because uh, we certainly was going to demand that, um, uh, the, that, you know, the people that are arrested, they have to face the accu- accusers, you know. Yeah. So <laughs> so I want to move forward a little bit. And, yeah. Devin, um, I mean, the, the organization has evolved since then. And in 2002, it created the Community Service Initiative. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what they have been doing to to refocus and perhaps address a lot of these issues that were were part of the organization from the beginning. Yeah, I think um, I in the last couple of years, I think the PR department for the Veiled Profit has gotten a little more robust. They have like a new website, and um, the big difference is, of course, instead of in the Post Dispatch where 
uh, all these pictures of the debutantes appear. Now they're in um, town and style, which is sort of a much or Ledoux news, which are much uh, magazines that are much larger, like sort of glossy magazines that go to only primarily the rich parts of town, um, which is indicative of another thing, which is, you know, the Fair St. Louis actually used to be the VP Fair. And in 1992, when they took the VP out of it, it was sort of another step out of the public light, mm-hmm. which is completely contrary to you know, the overall history of the Veiled Prophet Society, which was very much known to everyone in town. It was televised and um, everybody sort of knew about it, but just suspected it was kind of this eerie ongoing thing. Um, in terms of nonprofit, uh, I think that there is a component where the debutantes have to or, uh, volunteer their time to uh, at hospitals and things like that. But um, I also don't think that these debutantes or many of the members of the Veiled Prophet Society sort of understand the history of the organization or um, especially the girls participating in it. I don't think that they sort of know what happened with action in the 70s or anything before that. But well, as you an say, organi- oh, go ahead. You know, the other thing is that this, uh, this is, a, is a disease that needs to be eradicated. It needs to be eliminated altogether. St. Louis could do well without it. Why try to why try to um, uh, humanize something? That would be just like the, all of a sudden the Ku Klux Klan decide that all of a sudden now they, they're going to do good for the community and uh, and, uh, and change the face. If the best thing in the world would be for the Ku Klux Klan go out of business Mm-hmm. And any such organization that has that type of uh, image to go out of, uh, out of out of business. Now, if they want to go ahead and conduct that type of activity, as we so stated back in the day, have it out there and do. So, so you're saying though that if they first amendment rights, if they want first, if they want to argue their first amendment right, have it out there to do. Right. Have that disease and spread it out there. <laughs> I mean, they don't have to in, involve the whole entire city of St. Louis. Right, but but you're also saying though that regardless of any charitable activity that they engage in at this point, that that there that doesn't negate. Their well, history. Well, the thing about it, as far as I'm concerned, no. It would be just like if the Ku Klux Klan. I guess someone would want to say that uh, there is some good, but uh, I would not. That would be just like uh, with the Jewish community, except anything coming from uh, from Nazi Germany. I don't know. We have to kind of look at those type of things. It seemed like to me, if you want to do good, bury the hatchet, bury that type of activity. And if one wants to, uh, a group of uh, people from that, uh, uh, that want to do good, to start a, a decent organization and give it the type of birth that it needs to be, that involve all people and whatnot, and all classes. Because this, this thing was bad just for the working class, whites. The working class whites should not have been, uh, um, should not uh, embrace this thing. They should have been protesting it as well. Yeah, although it, the organization does allow a, a wider variety of people in at this point. What, I mean, the White Veil Prophet? The White Veil Prophet, yes. Oh, well, uh, the Veil Prophet, they are African Americans now. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, they, that, that, that's just a, you know, that's something that, yeah, I, I discount that. I'll claim it, but because the point is that it may well be that I will have an integrated uh, 
uh, unveiling of the veiled prophet this time rather than uh, an all-white, now that they're trying to superficially integrate it. But the point is that it's, it's all about economics. These are the wealthy, white, primarily males that controls the politics in the area. There's a whole bunch of things that need. The, the, the reason why we have so much, the reason why we don't have the type of crime in Ladue and Chesterfield and places like that is because of economics. You have the wealth, you have the, uh, uh, the companies, you have businesses, the, uh, the people there, they make a decent salary. And you contrast that to North St. Louis, then you can see. Now, if the people uh, were in Chesterfield and Ladue uh, had the same type of economics that we have here in North St. Louis, in the city of St. Louis, you have the behavior of the same. So I think that we need to look at what those people can really do and, and, and putting, uh, uh, putting Band-Aids on cancer, uh, as far as I'm concerned, is, uh, is not good enough. They need to eradicate uh, the sexism, um, classism, and elitism, and elitism. And I think that we can, we can do that if they have a conscience of doing something wow. worthwhile. Agreed. Well, given all this, Devin, I'm curious what drew you to research the Vale Profit Organization and, and write a novel? Uh, I think, I mean, it's... It's apparent that there's just, I mean, this history is full of interesting stories that all relate to St. Louis. Um, but when I first started researching it, my mom had mentioned it offhand as just sort of a weird thing that happened every year. And then I was starting an MFA program in Northwestern, and this was like four years ago. And so I just gradually started researching it more and more. And I knew that I wanted to write a book that is about St. Louis and sort of... Um, Somebody once said that St. Louis is like a city that's obsessed with its own symbols. Like, uh, we just love the arch. We love the river. It's, it's like baseball, these logos. But the Veiled Prophet is very much also a symbol of the city. Um, I'm also just very interested in novels that involve conspiracies and secret societies. I think those are naturally intriguing, especially as ways to talk about larger concepts that you can't sort of see all at once, sort of like the widespread racism and segregation of St. Louis. It's not apparent necessarily on the surface, but um, it is it is everywhere sort of once you start looking for it. Um, yeah, I think. So that was it. So the debutante in your, in your novel, if you don't want to give too much away, I don't I understand, but sure. it, it, is she rebelling against the organization or does she... Um, is, is she part of it? Uh, I think that's like a, I, I use a few different characters in the book, but uh, the main character, yes, is like a debutante who's being coerced into the um, into the debutante ball and is wrestling or unraveling the conspiracy of the history of the organization. So it's always a question of you know, it's not easy to rebel against your parents on that scale, especially when you're young like that, and um, to sort of reckon with the very difficult fast past in St. Louis um, is it, it's sort of emblematic of like of yeah I think parts of the novel that I don't want to disclose. Okay. Well, but, but but the interesting thing is it shows you, it shows you the dynamics of direct action protests and how it it's a double uh, action always used it as a as a, as a double edged sword. 
It informs the the larger community, especially if direct action is consistent. As I told you before, we had carried on a, pro, a direct action protest against the uh, the, white, the white VP for seven years prior to this. So therefore, that gave time enough for not just the average person to understand it, but even members of the elite. I mean, they would raise questions. Uh, they want to know, well, why are these people just wanting to protest this little innocent activity? Many of them didn't know the history of uh, how corrupt it is as it relates to humans and the working class and whatnot. Uh, we feel as if that uh, uh, the working class whites needs to be free as well in order to, um, for us to develop a, uh, you know, a city uh, that that is uh, where we all can function. It should not be what it is, and the people, the, the the rich and powerful, are the ones who are responsible. They control the resources. They can make it happen. So we actually have to end on that note. Why do we have to end? Because we. I have mean, to. we have so much more. <laughs> I know. I agree. <laughs> it's fodder for another time. And I and want to congratulate you on the, from what I'm hearing of your uh, research and uh, the book. Thank Here's you. hoping that it will. Uh, do well because seemingly that you're hitting some good uh, some good places, especially about the uh, uh, the railroad strike, the, uh, the the how the elite uh, broke the railroad strike and as a result putting on this parade or whatnot. You know, that's that's such a huge compliment. And hopefully that white folks, I mean the the, the working class whites, would be able to hear that and understand yeah. and join us in, 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 in eradicating and getting rid of it all together. Yeah. Well, we will point. have uh, resources on our website where people can learn more about um, the history of the Veiled Profit Organization and the history of action. Um, I want to thank both of you for being here, longtime civil rights activist Percy Green and writer Devin Thomas O'Shea. Thank you both so much for being here. And one more time, I want to say that we did invite Excuse me. We did invite a representative of the Veiled Profit Organization to join us as part of today's show. They cited the busyness of the season as they prepare for the holiday festivals. The organization declined our request, but said that they would consider our invitation in the future. I'm praying for a rain. <laughs> <laughs> this is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU.